Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Jacob Lawrence, The American Struggle at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. For the first time in more than 60 years, the exhibition presents Lawrence's 1954-56 series of paintings, Struggle from the History of the American People. Lawrence's work presents a revisionist and pictorial history of the first five decades of the American Republic, of what Lawrence called, quote, the struggles of a people to create a nation and their attempt to build a democracy. The exhibition was curated by Austin Baron Bailey and my guest, Elizabeth Hutton Turner. Turner is university professor in the McIntyre Department of Art and founding vice provost for the arts at the University of Virginia. This is the third major Jacob Lawrence exhibition she's curated. The exhibition also features three artists engaging with Lawrence's work and ideas, Derek Adams, Hank Willis Thomas, and Bethany Collins, who will join me on the second segment. First, Elizabeth Hutton Turner, after the break. Now on view at the Getty Center, Michelangelo, Mind of the Master, an exhibition of extraordinary drawings by one of the most creative and influential artists in the history of Western art. Experience the full range of his work as a painter, sculptor, and architect through studies and sketches for such celebrated projects as the Sistine Chapel ceiling and The Last Judgment. The Wall Street Journal calls the show nothing less than the perfect exhibition. Learn more about this major event at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. An exhibition of portraiture at Sheldon Museum of Art draws inspiration for its title, Person of Interest, from the common phrase for either a prospective source of information in a matter under investigation or a potential love interest. With works from the late 19th century to today, Person of Interest tests the very definition of portraiture through depictions of the literal and abstracted body. It asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, gender identity, and performance of identity. In so doing, it prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. On April 2nd, three artists featured in Person of Interest. Radcliffe Bailey, Renee Cox, and Renee Stout will participate in a panel at Sheldon to discuss portraiture in the contexts of race and gender identity, cultural legacy, and memory. Janet Dees, curator of modern and contemporary art at Block Museum of Art, will moderate the conversation. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. And we're back. Elizabeth Hutton Turner, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. Let's set the stage a bit for our conversation about these paintings. It's the mid 1950s. How old is Lawrence, and how many of his 10 narrative series of paintings has he already completed before he begins on this series? Yes. So Lawrence is 37 years old. Just thinking back when he came to fame with the exhibition of the Migration series at Edith Halpert's gallery, he was only 23. 
years old. And so moving forward in time, we find him in middle age at 37. And he is at the top of his game. His style has evolved and developed into a, a multi-layered, multivalent kind of application of paint. And his content is equally challenging and developed in terms of a very strong relationship between a word and image with his narrative cycles. This is this will be uh, his seventh out of ten narrative narratives that he'll do in his career. So you can see that it's heavily weighted. This narrative form, very challenging narrative form, comes out early in his career, and then he uses it strategically only at, at later intervals. Although I, I would add that there is a narrative component to many of his works, but this idea uh, his invention of the same-sized masonite panels or hardboard panels gathered together with text accompanied by text. You know, this is number seven. Five years after finishing the series, Lawrence calls it a turning point in his career. How so? I think he realized that he was operating at that level of control and the idea that he believed, I mean, he honestly believed in the, the power of his narrative invention and for his narrative invention to freight this kind of content about being American and seeing and owning American history, embracing it for what it, what it is, what it was, and to present that understanding to uh, the American public writ, writ large. I think he very much meant it to be a part of the conversation uh, at that moment in 19... Uh, well, it was... Uh, he started in 1954. He started it exactly the month in May 1954 at exactly the moment of the Brown versus Board of Education decision being uh, handed down. I, I think you can see his research uh, working in concert with that kind of uh, backdrop. Why do you think the subject he chose at that moment was the the history of the nation, which, I mean, it's certainly the biggest subject he could have chosen. (laughs) Well, let's think about it in terms of the kinds of conversations that were in the media at the time, this idea of the House Un-American Activities Committee the idea of this litmus test for who is an American and and who is the true American. At the same time, this question and important claim for equality in the desegregation of schools, you know, that I think calls for an identity check. And Lawrence is saying to the to the public writ large that um, all of American history is African-American history, that it that they're inseparable and that one needs to understand that it that African the African-American lens is critical to understanding American history. If I could just provide a moment of historiographical lens for that idea. The, the field of American history in 1956, especially 19th century American history, was dominated by Southerners. 
it's really not until you know you kind of get the the Eric Foners and uh, in that generation that the kind of the Southern hold on on the American story is is overturned. Are there any contexts for Lawrence's address of American history and his insistence on putting Black Americans at the heart of it that are that are relevant or informed him anything? contemporary, or is this entirely a product of his own revisionism? You're right. It's well before Howard Zinn's uh, social history of the 1960s. It's social history, bottom-up, if you will, uh, everyday people, ordinary people, decisions made by the people uh, that shape our life and times. So he's well ahead of his time in terms of historiography. But In backing up a bit, one must look also to the publication of John Hope Franklin's book, From Slavery to Freedom, being published in the late 40s, and then also think of the work, important work, of Herbert Aptiker in his documentation of bringing forward important documentation of the history of slavery in America and also bringing forward uh, key documents and publishing them. All of that, I think, goes to create this larger awareness on the part of Lawrence. But it is also, I think, his view that history should not be segregated. And that he, he, of course, as we, as we all know, was not a cultural separatist, that he, he really believed that his claim to those iconic events was a part and parcel of his own citizenship in the United States. So he believed that this this subject should be be a part of something that everyone needed to see and that from the public writ large, all Americans needed to understand it through the African-American lens because it had been totally left out. And so I think it's an eye opening, eye-popping kind of experience to be able to really deeply look into these paintings and read these words of individuals from that time frame. I think that's that's just a, a part of just how far he thought this invention could carry the message. It's quite exciting. You know, you were mentioning earlier about uh, Lawrence's moment at you know at the moment uh, where he, where he was in time how old he was and and that kind of thing at that point of his career he was also perhaps the best known african american artist in america or actually internationally he modern artist he was included in all of the key surveys of american art he is representing you know his figurative style, if you will, his his way of presenting content was present in all the surveys of American art, American painting. So he was quite prominent. There's one other book I thought of as I walked through the exhibition um, that's in Salem as we're, we're recording this, and that is W.E.B. Du Bois's 1935 book, Black Reconstruction in America, the subtitle of which almost perfectly describes Lawrence's project. The subtitle is An Essay Toward a History of the Part Which Black Folk Played in the Attempt to Reconstruct Democracy in America. Du Bois is framing foregrounds the role black Americans played as primary actors within an historical narrative that had not always included them as such. 
And I suspect Lawrence was well aware of the book. Yes, I, I imagine so. And Du Bois is also, you know, has a, a very large profile in America and in Harlem. I mean, he is very much challenging the United States conventional view of history, even as Lawrence is doing so in, in the 1950s. He is a part of teaching history at the Jefferson School, which has a branch in Harlem. There's very much a sense that history needs to be rewritten, expanded, and under understood as a, a larger phenomenon than simply the iconic events with the single white male hero at the helm. And as we get to talking about individual paintings, individual panels in a moment, we'll, we'll touch on a couple places where Lawrence really emphasizes that. But before we get into the panels, let's quickly set up the series. Uh, Lawrence plans this as a 60-painting series. It ends up being a 30-painting series. 25 of them are um, in the show as we tape this, although who knows, maybe if another one or two gets found, it will work its way in. This exhibition and, and book are an act of assembly, really. What did you have to do to to get all these pictures in one place at one time again for the first time since 1957, I think? Well, I think we um, had a, what shall we say, a leg up as our ally, a, a very passionate collector by the name of Harvey Ross, who at the time of the reunion of the Migration Series in New York in 1995, which was a reunion that I had, had curated and MoMA and the Phillips had co collaborated on, there was an exhibit of the uh, Struggle Series or some panels from the Struggle Series, an exhibit of Jacob Lawrence's work with the 17 panels of the Struggle Series at the... Um, Midtown Payson Gallery, and he began looking at these works and wondering why these were uh, scattered. They were in the hands of many different collectors, private collectors, and this was the only series that was not held by an institution, or at least a group of them weren't. So he and his wife, Harvey Ann, began to collect them. I came to know him. We stayed in touch. And so I would say, how did we get these uh, works together? We had a leg up in that Harvey and his wife, Harvey Ann, had gathered together uh, 12 of them. That pushed us to begin uh, through the catalog raisonne to contact other owners and would-be lenders and it's so interesting, Tyler, these panels had been located, but then it had been practically 20 years since their location had been identified. And in some cases, they had been sold, they had been dispersed. I mean, memory is a very short-term thing when it comes to the art market and tracing provenance. And so uh, it became a real detective game, finding people that or finding new, the new owners of certain pieces and being able to tell them about our project, this idea that we wanted not only to reunite the physical paintings, 
but also to reunite them. And this is where it really becomes the first time in 60 years, reunite them with their with the words that were meant to accompany them. And it's amazing how quickly those the words of the captions, the painting captions, were peeled away from these objects. Uh, they did not accompany them through time. And so in reuniting these pictures, pulling them together one by one, it was also reuniting them with the words because Lawrence's invention really comes, narrative invention really comes when you start to decipher uh, these color patterns and forms and uh, bringing them together with the words. His method is to read the full text of, let's say, a quotation that he's excerpted. So his manner of visualization comes from reading. And it's always been an interesting phenomenon that Lawrence is a modern artist who spends a great deal of time in the library. And he had a tremendous capacity for synthesis and to really understand the flow and also to to get to the heart of a particular passage or moment. That was also one of the great discoveries in bringing this together. Lawrence originally plans, you know, he has has various ideas for this uh, historical narrative, and he starts researching it in 1949. So it's five years of research uh, before he ever begins to paint. And so He's, he, in one of his funding applications, he explains that he has assembled a clipping file of 300 items. One can think about this kind of research, and we, we went to all the various archives for Jacob Lawrence, searching in vain for these clippings. Uh, what we found instead is, of course the clipping files at the Schomburg Library. And I don't know whether you remember the famous uh, Harmon Foundation photograph of the reading room of the Schomburg where people are diligently working at tables. What you see are people, not, not people reading books necessarily, you have people making up these clipping scrapbooks in the trash can beside the tables, you see the leavings of whatever they've cut out of newspaper articles that are related to African-American culture and history, various articles from magazines, just very interesting kinds of contemporary uh, looks at history and commentary and book reviews and all manner of things come up in these clipping files. And they, the Schomburg Library actually stopped doing that kind of work in 1972, and the clipping files last only live in microfiche, but they're there. And what they do is they give you an idea of Lawrence's research process, the idea of extrapolating or paying clear attention to what is going on in the news, in the, in the various um, publications at the time that he is working, but also knowing that Lawrence can rely on these various uh, thematic files, organized thematically, um, 
at the Schomburg. So I think that's that's an interesting aspect that we discovered. But Lawrence does start off, you know, working these five years, and he thinks at first it's going to be a, an African American history of that covers the entire time of time frame of U.S. history from its founding. But then Lawrence shifts, and it is in this period of 1954 that he decides, no, I'm going to take iconic events from American history and and look at them through the African-American lens. And yes, very much uh, in keeping with W.B. Du Bois's notion that America, all of America, needs to see or and understand this through this lens. So turning to the panels themselves, what are the themes or subjects that maybe aren't in every panel, but that remain present and foregrounded across the series? I think foregrounded in this series is the notion of the people, the idea that you see groups of people in the midst of deciding or fighting or pursuing, moving toward a goal, but they are in, in groups and they're ordinary people. They're women, they're men, they're all colors, races. You don't get a sense of overtly racial identification but you do have a sense that there's all kinds of people. I guess the word all is the best way of putting it, that Lawrence has a way of bringing people together and having it understood what is what kind of spirit is galvanizing their movement and what is creating these, these clashes. So, for example... I'm thinking of his painting called The Massacre in, at Boston. And this is, of course, the, the iconic moment where the colonists were held captive in a, a kind of occupied city, a city occupied by British troops, are fighting against this force. They don't, they see it as oppression. So we have the, the colonists throwing rocks and the the, the moment where the British soldiers fire. And uh, what Lawrence chooses to bring out of that iconic moment, again, a very strongly remembered moment, not the British soldiers, not the guns, but the colonists united, throwing the rocks, centered in the midst of that group is Crispus Attucks, who has fallen, and is bleeding and is the first martyr of, of, or considered to be the first martyr of the revolution. And so you've got that kind of triangular kind of composition that is filled with this fury of the colonists. It's, it's about what is galvanizing that group and how it is that, and their bodies almost in frame um, the fallen Crispus Attucks. You mentioned that the panels really focus on groups of people. There are only two panels in the entire series that feature individuals, single single individuals. 
you also mentioned the muscular compositions. I'm sure that's going to come up again and again as we talk. Massacre in Boston is just dominated by this impossibly beefy triangle um, at, the, at the right hand side of the panel. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Another painterly element that that recurs across panel after panel after panel is the way Lawrence uses the color red. How does red and, and really small but very loud passages of red recur over and over again? Well, starting with the very first panel that's in the sequence there in the exhibition, which you begin with a quotation from Patrick Henry's speech to the Virginia Convention, asking, are we willing to bear the chains of slavery is his question. And of course, that's not the famous quotation of give me liberty or give me death. But Henry's speech is more like a petition of an enslaved people. So he invokes slavery on behalf of the cause of the colonists' quest for freedom. And what Lawrence shows you are people listening to these words, hearing these words. And there is a curtain that covers part of the scene. And dripping from that curtain are large strokes of of red. And it's the symbolism of that red and the red for the blood of sacrifice that what is it going to cost to gain this freedom and who will sacrifice? And of course, all are meant to sacrifice. Everyone listening to those words knows that what will come is that kind of bloody sacrifice in in the fight. And of course, uh, Henry's words were meant to raise money for or, or to send the Virginia, to bring together the Virginia militia. So interestingly enough, there is a figure standing tall above them pointing behind that curtain. You can't see what's behind the curtain. The curtain's dripping with blood, but is pointing ahead. The people in below him are clustered in, in groups. There are mothers with children. There are men and and women of all persuasions and looking and thinking about these quickening, I guess, into these small groups, uh, listening to these words. So he puts the words and he makes a painting about what is it like to hear those words. And one imagines that that man standing with the musket pointing is Henry But uh, we've all had debates in our group of curators uh, trying to figure this out. Everybody has their own theory. But I think that goes to the point. It's the group. It's how Americans are this diverse and clustered people. Speaking of the group, uh, the 10th panel, which features the quotation, we crossed the river at McConkie's Ferry, nine miles above Trenton. The night was excessively severe, which the men bore without the least murmur. Tench Tillman, 27th of December, 1776. The 10th panel, uh, which is at the Met, is a riff on another painting at the Met by Emanuel Lutze from 1851. What is that 1851 painting, and how does Lawrence change the narrative to focus on the group? Can you imagine any greater contrast then the Emanuel Leutze painting with the Lawrence's painting. This Emanuel Leutze painting, of course, history painting in the 19th century was the 
the highest form of and the most important type of painting. And so it is given the largest amount of square footage. And I do mean square footage. It is the size of a large wall. Its frame is equally imposing. And what, of course, you have is a, a life-size, uh, practically, George Washington with his men crossing the river on Christmas Eve in order to surprise the Hessian soldiers that are fighting for the British. This is a particularly important moment in history because, of course, Washington's army had suffered any number of defeats. And so his ability to rally this army, even under the most adverse conditions to cross, is the main story here. And Loitza wants you to know who's in charge, and the hero there is Washington, and the men in the boats with him and behind him, pushing away the ice and, and crossing. It was a night crossing, so of course this iconic image doesn't uh, really give you that sense at all. So it is definitely a construction to feature Washington in a way that is not really related to the facts. The facts are that the men crossed in huddled in these small boats, these very flimsy boats, and that it was a rough, cold night in choppy water. And so what Lawrence chooses to favor is this firsthand count of Washington's secretary, a letter sent to Washington about how the men were fared during this crossing. And so you've got three boats in this blue sea of choppy water. You don't see either shore. What you are focused on is that they are in the midst of trying to get across that river and not drown. And uh, they are huddled down the swaths of cloth over these hunched bodies, various sort of hats distinguishing the individuals that are in the boat, but they're mostly muffled and huddled. And then the blood, the red of the red blood of sacrifice is dripping over the sides of the boat, various accents, just to remind you of exactly what, how harsh uh, the conditions were. But what I, I love about that is that you are in the midst. The way in which Lawrence wants, you to, wants to portray this, you don't know that this is going to be successful. You don't know that how it's going to be. It's the matter of submitting and undergoing and doing the willingness, finding the strength to actually pursue this, even when, you know, they had suffered already so many defeats, but they rallied and they got in the boat and went across the river. So it, it, uh, I think that's what he wants people to see. He, he doesn't want you to forget that it it really called upon everyone. Another constant across nearly all of the pictures in the series is the palette Lawrence uses. You know, there are some some browns and some blacks, of course, but but the palette is overwhelmingly oriented around the three primary colors, red, yellow, and blue. 
and, and Lawrence often uses uh, a pale green as well. Green into the 18th century was, was considered to be a primary color until it was supplanted by LeBlanc, for example. So in a painting like panel 18, in all your intercourse with the natives, treat them in the most friendly and conciliatory manner, which their own conduct will admit, from a letter Jefferson wrote to Lewis and Clark in 1803. Lawrence is absolutely clearly building the panel around not just the groups of figures that we've we've discussed, but around the, the primary colors. Is there a metaphor? Did he intend there to be a metaphor between his use of primary colors and um, the American Democratic Project or the centrality of democracy to the American project? Well, certainly, though, you, you make a good point about the repetition of that palette throughout the entire series. And of course, it is the unifying device. And I do think that the strength of that construction, and he is literally constructing with those primary colors, uh, really does have to do with seeing a unifying thread uh, going through the uh, whole series. I've often wondered about that. I've often wondered, Mm -hmm. because we often, with the migration series, talk about the migration colors, but in terms of orange and green and black and thinking about how those work together, and then thinking about the struggle with, I would say, the white and the the blue and the golden brown, and then these flashes of red. Th- those seem to be his colors of, of choice. And in talking about the panel that you just referred to about with the quotation from the letter, Jefferson's instructions to Lewis and Clark on the treatment of Native peoples that they certainly, most certainly will encounter and most certainly need the help of in order to traverse this territory at all. You see that panel being the one that employs, I would say, the greatest range of colors and the greatest display of colors. I almost see this as a kind of a a very human love note in the middle of what obviously is a very tense and frenzied kind of, there are many tense and frenzied moments. But here we have a moment in in a vertical panel that's almost divided in half. And of course, that's a very daredevil move for an artist to create that kind of deliberate kind of symmetry because it could very well fall apart, fall flat. But in Lawrence's hands, these colors, uh, the the red and the blue meeting there at the center, the two columnar figures, then the stacking, the meeting of two parties. There's the voyage of the explorers from the voyage of discovery, led at this moment by Sacagawea, meeting up with the chief Comcoate, and they are, um, it is a really signal, signal moment in this journey. And almost every journal, anyone that kept a journal on that voyage of discovery recorded this event. It it was so momentous. And what Mm -hmm. Lawrence does is tell it in the most dramatic fashion possible. He picks this moment where Sacagawea is talking to Chief Kumkawait and she recognizes that the person she is talking to is her brother. And she has not seen him for 
15 years. And she had been captured in a tribal dispute in a war and enslaved. And then she had eventually been sold to her French uh, fur trapper husband, Charbonneau, who was hired as a guide for Lewis and Clark with his wife. And so you, you have this incredible reunion and this wonderful warmth. And these two figures come up together and they almost form a shape of a heart. They want to, the, the, the movement of their shoulders bending inward almost makes you feel that sort of shape, heart shape in the center. And it's the moment just before they burst into great joy and happiness and dancing. They all, all the journals from this moment tell us that there was great joy and dancing, this reunion of this family. And I think Lawrence wants you to understand beyond the political implications of conquest or ownership or territory that there is this bond, this sense of humanity and this love. And like I said, I I think that this is a love note in the middle of this very troubled story of American history. But you find this and it is a real achievement for Lawrence to portray this visually with these various planar forms and these very bright colors. Speaking of colors, panel four is one of the most interesting in the series for me. It the, the quotation that goes with it is, I alarmed almost every house till I got to Lexington, Paul Revere. The, the panel presents uh, Revere's horse as, as being black and has Revere wearing a black coat and a black hat, which we, of course, read as the famous tricornered hat of the time. I'm not a Revere expert, of course, but I don't know of anything that meaningfully or truthfully suggests that Revere rode a black horse and wore a black cloak. But certainly much of, um, but certainly the ride was at night and he was unseen and unknown about by the British. And certainly one reading is that Lawrence is using black for the horse and Revere's garments as a way of referencing how he was cloaked from their sight. But another possible reference came to mind, and I wonder if you think Lawrence could have been using it. This is a painting made in in 1954, just a year or two after Ralph Allison's Invisible Man was published. Do you think Lawrence is compressing and layering histories here? Could he be referring to Allison? I must say that I hadn't thought about it that way, but now that you mention it, I can understand uh, the connection that uh, certainly Lawrence was uh, aware of Ellison and there are other ways in which he indicates this in other series. So I'm thinking that what is so unique about Lawrence's rendering of Paul Revere as the Knight Rider, as the rider who comes in to alarm the Sons of, of Liberty, he's one step ahead of the British, he's cloaked in darkness, and He's not calling a huge amount of attention to himself, as he explains in this text, which was, you know, a recollection and written many years later. But he was talking about just this idea that he was being pursued 
and that he needed to get this information to this group of people who cluster around him. It's very hard to even distinguish the individual figures that are around this horse and rider. This is not your traditional uh, scene that Grant Wood, for example, the Paul Revere of the of the American scene painters. This is someone who is meant to blend, meld, kind of be instrumental, but then move on. The last panel I want to specifically raise is uh, number 19. It shows an imagined passage from the War of 1812 when the British impressed American soldiers. And in Lawrence's representation, three soldiers are bound, poked with swords, prompted to bleed. And of course, this is um, one of the series of such events that, that leads to the War of 1812. So speaking of the illusion of history, again, it, it, it's, it's a picture that very much recalls slavery in the Middle Passage and, and, and the impressment of Africans who were then transported to the Americas and the Caribbean. Do you think Lawrence is referencing many histories at once here, or, or am, I, am I overreaching? <laughs> you know, I start to think about many things when I think of that panel of the, the prisoners being marched before the commandant of the, or the captain of the ship who postures over them and uh, they're being goaded and pushed along, and then you can see the blood coming from, you know, where they've been pierced and poked. And I've sort of connected that with certainly the stacking and, and the, the terrible dehumanized aspect of this. You know, the, the prisoners have their heads hunched, they have their backs toward you, they're, they're lozenge-shaped, they're stacked kind of vertically as they're walking onto the deck in chains. I, I don't think there's any question that the analogy with enslavement, impressment and enslavement was certainly used by people at the time. And then thinking the way in which that memory of slavery and the presence of the unresolved, I think this is the, you, you know, we're talking about historical elision and how uh, the past and present work together in these paintings. It's unresolved history. It's history waiting for an acknowledgement. It's history waiting for a kind of recognition of what it took to be American, to defend America, to fight for America, to gain equality and justice in America, all of that is an unresolved history. And I think Lawrence is giving you kind of an ambiguity with, he has this wonderful way in the struggle series. Abstraction really is an important component of that historical elision that's going on in these compositions where, you know, these vertically stacked forms uh, really allow for you to begin to imagine how that kind of analogy was absolutely clear. But there are other compositions where you've got amazing abstraction that allows for you to understand and empathize. I think that's the other aspect of this series. You know, we've talked about sacrifice. We've talked about this kind of frenzy and conflict. 
and these overlapping and clashing, very sharp forms coming together. But abstraction also creates passages that aren't necessarily describing any one thing, but allows for you to see many things. So if you let me just go back in the series and point to the the farmer with the load of hay that is he's hauling he's almost he's so encumbered by this gigantic load of hay that is this profusion of this golden these golden shapes and and he's weighed down he's hunched over he's pulling this cart and it has to do with the weight of the obligation of our democracy that we mutually pledge to one another in our democracy and we are we're encumbered by this weight this pledge and so Lawrence visualizes it in that way and I I can't get over you know just the number of abstract passages that allow for you to begin to understand and feel so many things that's panel six. It recalls Millet, and it absolutely does not recall Millet. <laughs> Let's close by talking a little bit about how Lawrence painted these panels. Each is 12 by 16 or 16 inches by 12, depending on orientation. Each is egg tempera on, on, on board. To me, each of them, I mean, almost all of them, recalls or looks a lot like fresco painting, albeit with, of course, all kinds of modernist twists and such. But the way Lawrence lays on his paint and layers it even looks like uh, fresco painting into wet plaster. W- was Lawrence interested in fresco painting? He spoke about fresco painting. He talked about the paintings of the early Renaissance and being very influenced by the way in which tempera paint was applied in making these very small panels, uh, devotional panels in, in tempera and the brightness of the colors and the way in which they could be applied in these layers. You know, you see many similarities across his series with the idea that, you know, the panels are prepared, they have the gesso, and then he draws on them. You can see the pencil drawing. It shows through. And then the way in which he then makes these amazing shapes in applying these colors, it's not two or three shapes, as one might find in the migration series. It's it's just these amazing kind of fractured kaleidoscopic shapes that, that start to mesh and overlay. And then each color area starts to have, there might be a darker blue and then a lighter blue, but you get a kind of sense of flashing light. And there's a amazing kind of chromatic brilliance he's able to get by allowing the colors that he's using to have these different kinds of shaded areas. But it's not traditional modeling in any any stretch of the imagination. It's much more about allowing this color to begin to operate in the space of this construction of what he called composition. And this armature of the line and then these these amazing colors that come to these very, very sharp points are, are just uh, remarkable. 
I found myself walking through the show thinking of thinking very much of fresco painting and the relation of fresco painting to endurance, to how frescoes are fundamental to or part of the architecture once they're completed. And thinking of that as maybe Lawrence's metaphor for how art and indeed his own interpretation is fundamental to the history of the nation. I do think the idea of the permanence of tempera and the the strength, the permanence and the strength of tempera paint and the architecture of his composition that is organized by his dividing the space with these lines. There's very much an analogy there, Uh, Tyler. I think you've set up a, a beautiful analogy. Elizabeth Hutton Turner, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It's been my great pleasure. Support for the Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view from March 13th through August 2nd at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins resounding a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career, and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, end papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, March 8th through August 9th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, artist Bethany Collins. As a part of Jacob Lawrence, The American Struggle, Collins has installed a multidisciplinary gallery at the Peabody Essex. It includes her America a Hymnal, a 2017 artist's book that features 100 versions of the song My Country Tis of Thee. The versions were written between the 18th and 20th centuries. In the book, the song's ever-changing lyrics remain legible, while the tunes that ostensibly unify the songs have been nearly burned away, leaving only scorch marks and other residue. The gallery includes artist-made wallpaper and a six-track audio recording of six different versions of the song. Collins' work frequently addresses language, song, and how they relate to national and racial identities. She's had solo shows at the Contemporary Art Museum St. Louis, the University of Kentucky, and at the Birmingham Museum of Art. Last year alone, she was featured in group exhibitions at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, the Kalamazoo Institute of Arts, and at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Richmond, Virginia. I say she frequently addresses song in her work because this summer she'll be doing it again. On June 26th, the Frist Art Museum in Nashville will present Evensong, an exhibition featuring Collins' address of the Star-Spangled Banner. Bethany Collins, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. Your work quite often addresses language, be it written or spoken, or as here at the Peabody Essex, written, spoken, and sung. 
Was there a specific passage or text that started you down the words path way back when? Well, I started using language when I was in grad school because I was making work about race and identity. And at the time, I was the only black grad in a black grad at Georgia State in downtown Atlanta. So I was making work about race and identity. It was just leading to these very awkward conversations that had nothing to do with the work itself. For instance, I made a paper bag piece that had to do with colorism. And the critique I got was, well, maybe you should make the paper bag into a slave ship. And then I would get that it's about race. Or don't you think your work is a little elitist because I don't know that history. So I can't critique this work. And the choice to use language then was a way to to not make a hundred little paper bag slave ship artworks in order to satisfy the critique, which felt, which I knew immediately as recognized as problem, but also to kind of expel that language from my practice. So I didn't internalize it. And so the beginning, you know, that entry of language into my practice is a thread that continues even to now. It's the repetition of language, the repetition of language until it becomes painful the deconstruction of language in order to divorce it from its initial meaning, and also to attempt to understand in intent. Those are things that continue today. One of the things your work consistently does is addresses language writ large rather than individual words. So, so groups of words, paragraphs, pages, multiple pages. Was it always thus, or did you have to work from one to other? I mean, my, my general interest in language is in its capacity, that if, if we're on the same page and we know the same words, there's nothing that we cannot share between ourselves. But at the same time, because we made it, that language is bound to fail. And so the idea of language oftentimes is what I'm trying to grapple with. Language is the subject of the work and the material versus individual words. But I did come upon, after that white noise series, which started in grad school, I was, that work was making me tighter and more obsessed with phrases and questions rather than deconstructing language in order to let it go. I just became more tightly obsessed. And so the next part of language that I looked at or came across was contronyms, which are words that contain their own opposite meaning. Quiddity is still the best one. And so in this instance, I am looking at particular words, but for how they represent language as a whole. Quiddity means the essence of something and a trifling nothing. So it's everything and it's nothing at the same time, still the best contronym. And that felt like a way to talk about race and identity, which I'm interested in, but also to give spaciousness to the work and to myself, that it could also be talking about 10 other things. It is everything and it is nothing. It also felt referential back to language in and of itself. It's everything and it is nothing. So sometimes I am dealing with words, but in that instance, with the contronym specifically, I'm looking at the opposing definitions that the way that language must abide itself in opposition to itself. And in that way, it becomes a kind of stand-in for how we must abide our own opposites. Was there an artist or group of artists or a body of work that gave you, air quotes, permission to use words and to investigate language? I remember seeing Kazuth's work, the chair piece in undergrad, and feeling like it hit a different note. It's like three-way indirect, in some ways meaningful and meaningless way of thinking about, meaningless way of thinking about meaning, that it only has potency because we give it so, because we give it such. Um, I remember that one kind of tickling me. Tickling is not the right word. (laughs) 
giving me feelings. <laughs> I mean, lately I'm drawn to her work that actually feels linguistic, but doesn't necessitate language at all. Agnes Martin feels that way to me. Encore uses language, but that show at the Guggenheim was just the best thing I've seen in a long time. That chronology felt much more potent than the actual language that was present. And the way it traveled up that space, oh, it was so good. I don't think I've seen the Guggenheim look so intentional to the work, or the work so intentional to the space, ever before. Were either Kay Rosen or Glenn Ligon important? I do love Glenn Ligon's work. I see the difference between us as a kind of accumulative mark, that the context or the meaning is found in accumulation versus erasure. That feels like distinction, yeah. Um, let me introduce the piece at the Peabody Essex Museum which takes a song that is known in the English-American tradition as either God Save the Queen or My Country Tis of Thee, but that has gone through many different lyrical iterations over several hundred years. For this piece, did you, did you start with the tune or the lyrics or, or what bound you up in it? This is one of, so America, the, a hymnal, is the heart of my chapel-like space within the Jacob Lawrence exhibition. America Hymnal is one of the first works that I made after the 2016 presidential election. I was looking for, what I started looking for was the language of the end. And so I picked up a bunch of post-apocalyptic literature. I was looking for how other people say that the world has ended, but we're still here. Someone's still here to write about it. Like, tell me how you name the end of the world. That also led to the Odyssey and just picking up a bunch of other texts. But eventually I came to one of the texts I came to and thinking about how do you, not just like how do you name the end of the world, but how do you name the world that we lived in before? How do you describe this place? That didn't occur to me before it shifted, if that makes sense. It didn't occur to me to talk about, about American national identity because national identity and patriotism feels like a complicated conversation belonging to this place that doesn't always claim you back is a complicated kind of conversation. But one of the texts I found was a 1988, 87, 88 book by Edie Hirsch. It's called Cultural Literacy, Things Every American Should Know. And in the back of the text, there's 5,000, an index of 5,000 things that if we all know them, according to Hirsch, we will feel like we belong together. But it's a list of 5,000 things written by, by one person from a very particular vantage point. And so, of course, things are left off the list. But there's nine patriotic songs listed, and My Country Tis of Thee is one. This is a kind of thread of research. So looking specifically at My Country Tis of Thee, I found, I don't remember how, but I found similar to contronyms, there are a subset of songs called contrafactums which used to be a much more common, popular, early American practice in which you, you would change the lyrics but leave the melody consistent. So a lot of early American songbooks actually print their songs this way, where it's simply lyrics in the form of a poem. No musical notation, no sheet music, no staffs, none of that. I mean, for one reason, it's an economical way of printing, but it also assumes, similar to Edie Hirsch, that we all know the song together. We belong together. We know the melody. So I can change the lyrics for a different political purpose and get you to think about it in a different way. So versions of My Country Tis of Thee, of which I found a hundred, range from suffragette, suffragette movement, temperance versions, prohibition versions, which are the worst. 
They're so melodramatic. And they're the most of them are the temperance versions. We were just obsessed. And then also the Confederacy has their version. So does the abolitionist movement. And so these 100 versions are bound together in a hymnal, America hymnal. And similar to the contronyms, these contrafactums now must abide one another. A hundred often dissenting, differing versions of what it means to be American and to sing to this place and to belong to this place often, most often, are not in agreement. So for that hymnal, I burned the music away, all the musical notes, and left the lyrics legible. You're talking about in text, just to be clear. So, so the artist's book you made in 2017 features the lyrics burnt away using a laser. Musical notes burnt away and then lyrics left legible. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right. So the artist book dates to 2017, like you, like you mentioned, the first thing you made after the 2016 American presidential election. When did the audio component come into the work? The audio part of the work was actually made for, commissioned by the Peabody Essex for this exhibition. So I grew up in Alabama in a Presbyterian church, very progressive Presbyterian church. Um, and we used to have these 48-hour Bible readings. So you would sign up for your hour, day or night, come and read the text. You pick up where the last person left off. So at 3 a.m., you would be reading from the pew uh, or from the pulpit. And usually no one would be in the pew. No one else would be in the church, just you. But from some other place, you know that this sacred text is being read into the world. And, that's, and that felt valuable. So I did a couple of performances of the um, hymnal, the artist book, where I did the first one was a kind of open call. Anybody could come and sign up to sing for 30 minutes and we would get through the hymnal. I think it was like 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. We went kind of back and forth, forth singing through the hymnal. That was deeply uncomfortable, <laughs> but felt very democratic. Some people were good singers. Most people were very nervous to participate. Some, I had one singer who was really bad. She was bad. And I think she did it on purpose. But that felt true to the moment. <laughs> that when we sing this song, it will not always be great. And in fact, the, the hymnal, the artist book actually, because these little tiny notes are burned away using a laser cutter on each page, as you read through the text, you know, the absence of the note, the charred pages start to stick together. They tangle up and they become more complicated and more illegible. And so the more you read this text, the more you sing this song, in a sense, the more complicated it becomes. It aids its own maybe destruction. To participate is to change the thing. You have to decide whether you want to read it or sing it and be part of it. The audio, though, was a chance to actually have six different singers kind of disembodied, so just voices throughout the space each of them singing through the entire hymnal. So each of the six singers on six different channels is singing through the hymnal, but in different orders. And so my hope is when you stand in the middle of the space that it sounds, the tune is, is present and sounds familiar. But because they're all singing different songs, that it also sounds like familiar noise. So let's hear a clip from the audio of the piece here.
In the gallery at the Peabody Essex, there are six speakers around the room, and each speaker is playing a different track of the piece. And so if you stand or sit in the middle of the room, there is kind of the washing over you feel you were kind of describing a moment ago. But but if you stand underneath an individual specific speaker, there's a lot of, your, your our ears and brain understand a lot of clarity about a specific version of, of, of the song. Were you interested in blending, if that's the right word? Um, were you interested in there being kind of a moment of, I don't know, hegemony? The entire audio piece is about, I think it's three hours and 24 minutes, 52 seconds. I think that's right. But at two points, I think only two points, five of the six singers will be singing in harmony or they're, they're singing the same song. It's a strange moment because they I had I taped them all singing individually and so they never another they had to sing their own America a hymnal by themselves in an audio booth sound booth and so they're not exactly in sync and there's a bit of a kind of haunting haunting similarity even when they sing somewhat together they're a little bit off there is never though a moment in which they're all singing the same song never ever all six and that felt like a way to talk about democracy too, that it's even in our good moments, even when we've reached a kind of consensus, we're never all in agreement at our best. <laughs> Maybe you get five out of the six. That's a good transition to a piece you're doing for the Frist later this year. It's also a project that addresses a patriotic standard, a song that is about democracy and a song that has in many ways more problematic origins. What song is that, and why we're kind of revisiting these um, 18th and 19th century nationalistic songs appealing to you? So for the first, I'm making the, the second hymnal, which is we'll, we'll take the Star-Spangled Banner and find um, 100, 100 rewritten versions, also from the 18th to 20th centuries of the Star-Spangled Banner. And similar to America hymnal, which takes my country to the the versions of the Star-Spangled Banner are labor union, abolitionist prohibitions, suffragette movement, confederacy, union versions as well. There's a bit of a similarity. There's a way in which the, both hymnals tell the history of America through whatever particular urgent movement at the time, kind of political cause at the time, feels most pressing, pressing enough to write a song about it. So for the Star-Spangled Banner, that song, of course, begins as a battle song, a song of war. And so I'm actually, there's feels like there's three different parts to this work. The first will be the hymnal made in the same manner of America, a hymnal. So the burning of the music, the legibility of the lyrics, that hymnal, that text will sit in the middle of one space, one gallery space. And then around that hymnal, I'm making three panel works, panel paintings, Similar to those early white noise chalk on chalkboard pieces, these will be blue, blue panels. And on top of them, I'm pulling out lyrics from each of the 100 songs eventually, but a lyric that feels like it romanticizes that violent nature of the, of the original battle song. For instance, 
from one version of the Star Spangled Banner, there's a lyric that says, till the pen or the orator stirs them to fight, while her soil boasts a son to raise rifle or limb, where the lash is made red in the blood of the slave and the glory of death for the stripes and the stars. There's this poeticization of death and violence and battle and war that feels like it speaks to American history and the, what we value in a national anthem. So your pieces that have engaged with songs have been very much about songs that most Americans are taught from an early age are, are deeply patriotic, and then you complicate that history. What is it about patriotic songs that strike you as a particularly good jumping off point or place to investigate America's relationship with America? The third piece that's in the Peabody Essex show is that photographic wallpaper where I'm looking at official state flowers of the American South. And I think national anthems, similarly, it is one symbol that is supposed to represent all. And that immediately becomes problematic because you, you know, as the hymnal suggest, there's a hundred, at least a hundred different ways to tell the story of what it means to be American and to belong to this place. But at least those symbols give us a place to begin. Yeah, because I think it also points to the hazards of narrowing, you know, that, the hazards of insisting on a unitary. You know, one interesting thing is that Edie Hirsch book in 88 that I, I pulled these songs from, those nine patriotic songs. So I made a panel work for each of those nine songs. And they start the color of the original hymnal, America hymnal, and then that bright cadmium medium red. And then each of them, as they progress through the nine until they get to Amazing Grace, falls into shadow. So that red gets darker and darker. And I was looking in each of those nine songs for the love language. So from My Country Tis of Thee, I pulled Thy Name I Love. You're a grand old flag. I am for you. Amazing Grace will forever be mine. This lyrical lyrics that feel like they belong in a love song versus what to me feels like patriotism. It's not always about love, or at least that love is always complicated by its own, by our own history. It makes a lot of sense, both in the context of the songs you're addressing and the work, but also in terms of the political moment at which you're installing them and showing them now in America, but also in the context of, of Jacob Lawrence's work, which is not just in his American Struggle series, but in his other series, he's, I mean, there is a, a, a fondness both of narrative and of national narratives that run across, runs across Lawrence's work. It's just that he doesn't, you know, to him, and, and I think to many of us, questioning a nation's failure to live up to its ideals is part of patriotism. And there is a political viewpoint in America that love is the only thing that matters when it comes to patriotism and that questioning is not part of love. And so that's why I'm glad <laughs> that's where you took that question. There are two other elements of the work I, I want to get to. One is your work very often emphasizes or foregrounds, indeed leaves, makes as, as, as separate works or as part of works, the physical residue of labor. I'm thinking of how in texts you erase words with a specific eraser, um, a pink pearl, the, the kind of eraser being important enough to you that you include it in the media, you know, the list of media from which the work is made. Why is foregrounding labor important to you? And why is that specific eraser important to you? I mean, often I, 
I hate to write for someone who uses language. I hate writing because that's about finding the right words for something versus what Maggie Nelson calls kind of leaning on the language of others. I like to begin with a text that already exists in the world and to see if through a kind of physical labor and editing or manipulation, often erasure, can I shift the meaning in order to become, I think, master of, to exert a kind of control over what initially feels so unwieldy to me, or at least frustrating. The labor though, you know, when I'm erasing the Odyssey pieces or the contronyms, I'm using spit across the surface instead of water. Spit's more acidic, and so it allows the eraser to eat into the surface of the page, and it crumbles the paper. The paper itself kind of beads up along with the latex of those pink pearl erasers, and they fall beneath the surface of the work. And that becomes its own piece later. But the residue that it leaves on the page is a kind of, I mean, it's like mouth to page. It's somehow voice on the surface of the page. And the language then, by the end of it, by the time it's become painful, feels like it's now also physically manifest in the body, in my body. But I am also now, you know, on the surface of the page. It's mine. And it feels, by the end of the work, always, that I have a kind of ownership of that language. What starts off as so frustrating, language in and of itself, is now mine. And because I don't like to write, I like to then claim that language as my own by the end. That feels important. It's like Carrie James Marshall's show, Mastery, right? Wasn't at the MCA? It feels like a way to claim mastery of a thing. As you mentioned, the residue of eraser shaving, scraps, whatever comes off of an eraser when you erase, and, and paper and spit often ends up as um, a standalone sculpture you present and install. We'll have images of such on manpodcast.com. One of the constants in your work is that books have been sites of interventions or things on which you've worked or built, such as with your 2013-14 Colorblind Dictionary, from which all the words, all the color words have, have been erased. You've been working with books for, you know, six, seven years now, at least, what about books as a specific site or object attracted to you? And then why does that hold your interest? I mean, dictionaries in particular, books, the dictionaries in particular have a kind of authority over language, but they also have a history to them. There is a definition of gray in 1982, 84 in the American Heritage Dictionary that pops up in that decade, doesn't exist the decade before and doesn't exist the decade after. I think it's designating an urban area deteriorating into a slum. I mean, why I'm interested in texts, particularly in dictionaries, is because as a arbiters, authorities over language, one, I think, would assume that after so many years, at least our color terms would be settled law. <laughs> they would not shift over time, but instead everything language is constantly shifting as a reflection of us constantly moving. In the 1980s, there's an interesting scandal that happens in the dictionary world. Do you know this? No, no. But I love the way that you're talking about dictionaries as history books. Yeah, they're reflections of us in a given moment. So in 1982, American Heritage Dictionary scandalizes the world. <laughs> it's exaggeration. But there's a big dictionary scandal because they add a contributors board that is not made up of staff members of the dictionary, nor all linguists. So Antonin Scalia, Dr. Angelou, Carl Sagan, 
And the most controversial to be added to the contributors board that year was a New York political cartoonist for the New Yorker or the New York Times. And everybody was like, why? Why do we, what does he have to say? He draws things. And their justification was, but he has the most efficient use of language you could possibly imagine. And that's what we need. So what also happens that decade for American Heritage Dictionary is that the illustrative sentences turn violent. For instance, find, F-I-N-D, you could give context to that word by saying, I found my keys, done. Instead, the illustrative sentences are the burglar will be found out, the jury will find for the defendant, the liar will be brought to justice, over and over again. I read through the whole text and made an index of all these violent sentences because it feels like there's a there must be a reason that it's the 1980s, that it's the 1980s and that it's the American Heritage Dictionary that it turns, that our language shifts towards or leans into or maybe reveals a predilection for the criminal justice system and retribution and morality and violence over and over again. So that language and dictionaries and encyclopedias, these kind of history books of a time, that they reveal who we are and what we value in any given moment. And finally, one of the ironies, if you will, of or maybe paradoxes of your interest in words and language and how they've developed and how you make that manifest in art objects and performance and sound is that your undergraduate degree is a slightly unusual one for an artist. Your undergraduate experience was in visual journalism. So has that particular education background helped or mattered or no? I think there's some similarity to what I do in that it's about interrogating, maybe finding us being given a story and having to interrogate it further, that the interest is actually in questions I think, especially for photojournalists, maybe more so than, than not, that you're trying to find an image that represents but doesn't necessarily answer a question. So I think I'm doing some of the same things. My practice is research-based. I love finding a problem in the archive that maybe not everybody has heard about and bringing it to light. I like the questions. I hate finding the answers to things. I'm not interested in finding answers or resolve. I just want to bring something. I want to dredge it up from the archive and show it and give it a bit more light. The part that doesn't feel similar is be, I worked for a couple of small community newspapers over the summers while I was um, getting my degree. <laughs> I hated it. It requires so much extrovertism that I don't possess. Like I want to ask these quiet questions in the solitude of my studio, not in front of everybody. And it requires being told no quite often as well. Is it okay if I take your picture? Can I get your name? <laughs> being rejected all the time. I did not enjoy it. I love solitude. Studio. Studio solitude. Bethany Collins, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.